It's good to be with you again this morning. There's no bacon, but hey, that's not why you came, really. I don't have a ball this morning, and yet still, here we are, men, exposing ourselves to the Word of God, hoping that God will transform us and change us through that exposure. So, welcome. We're glad to be here together again this morning, and I'd invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 1 as we begin. I'm going to read the first three verses that we talked about last time and then go straight on into the fourth verse because there's not a hard stop between verse 3 and, and verse 4, and yet there, there is a distinction between them. We move from one general subject in the first three verses into a one specific, and the first specific subject in verses th 4 through 14. So just listen, we'll read through the whole thing to orient ourselves and then we'll go back and look at it in more detail and see, well, how does this apply to my life? Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son? Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This is the word of God. And thanks be to him for it. Well... That whole first chapter uh, sets the stage, obviously, for the rest of the, of the book of Hebrews. The first three verses that we looked at last time setting the, the stage for all. And now with verse 4, we begin a specific subject of how is it that Jesus is unsurpassed, to use the word I used last time, that we, we talked about in the past and now in these last days, and Jesus is unsurpassed. Jesus is supreme. And it's almost as though you can hear the audience begin to think for a minute, well, yeah, is he? What about, what about angels? What about Moses? What about Aaron? What about the tabernacle? What, and so what about the old covenant? And all of these questions that, that, that come up, and the author is very clear, no, Jesus is better. 
Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And that is, in fact, the great theme of the entire book of Hebrews. This is it. There's no greater revelation from God or revelation of God than Jesus Christ. And therefore, he is better than anything else you can imagine. Um, anyone you can name, I can name better uh, because I'll just name Jesus. And you can say, well, I could have picked Jesus. All right, fine. Jesus is supreme. But verse 4 introduces a very important word in the book of Hebrews. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The word superior. Jesus is superior to angels. That we'll see in this chapter and also chapter 2. Then Moses in chapters 3 and 4 and then so on and so forth. We'll see several Old Testament shadows of which Jesus is or to which Jesus is superior. And that's what we'll be working our way through. But first we begin with Jesus is superior to angels or he's better than angels. They're excellent. He is more excellent. Now in working our way through these verses, verses 4 through 14, we're going to see this superiority over and over again in different ways. In fact, we're going to see the superiority of Jesus to angels in four ways in Hebrews 1, 4 to 14. The superiority of Jesus to angels in four ways so that, and this, that's a hugely important connector for us, so that we might become better in at least two ways. So we are learning this information about Jesus. There's a lot of sort of academic, esoteric, Bible study, exposition here, Fred, exposition. We're going to do exposition. You can pay $10 for Al Mohler or you can come and get me free. Uh, but uh, you can, you'd probably do well to get Al Mohler just so you can compare and contrast. Check, you know, was he on target or not on target here? Uh, so you're going to get exposition, but exposition is for the purpose of application. So if we're not making application, we are guilty of exactly what James chided us for, you're hearers of God's word, but you're not doers of it. So it's more important that we be doers of God's word than we merely be hearers of God's word. And it was Jesus who compared those who hear his words and don't do anything about them to people that build their house on sand. And when the storm comes, when the class five, category five hurricane roars through the beachfront property, there's nothing left. So we want to be those who build our house on a rock by listening to God's word and doing it. And we need his help for that. So let's just pause, pray. No problem with Mike Warner's prayer, I guarantee you that. But uh, let's pray specifically. Okay, Lord, help us make that, that shift from exposition to application. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would... Open our eyes. We know we're stubborn. We know we're lazy. We know we have tendencies to just want to form everything into what we already know, and we're not eager to learn new things from you too much of the time, particularly early in the morning. But, Lord, we do pray now that you would open our eyes, that we might behold incredible things out of your word. And we pray that those incredible things would not just be intellectually titillating, but that they would be life-transforming. So, Lord, show each one of us an application from Hebrews 1, 4 to 14, for your honor and glory and for our good. We ask it in Jesus' name because there is none higher. Amen. Jesus is better than angels in four ways so that we might become better in two, at least two. First, Jesus is better than angels 
just as Scripture is better than speculation. Just as Scripture is better, superior to speculation. We in this passage have seven citations from the Old Testament that are used to establish the thesis that Jesus is better than angels, superior to angels. Seven times in these relatively few verses, he's just chucking out a verse to say, well, this says it, well, that says it, well, that other verse, well, as David says, as Moses said in Deuteronomy, as over and over and over again, Jesus is better, seven passages of Scripture. And that's significant because of the question that should have come to all of our minds and did come to some of our minds, why does he start with Jesus as superior to angels? I mean, was anybody in doubt about that? Was there any question that Jesus was superior to angels? Why angels? Angels are not that big a deal in my understanding of Scripture, so why come up with that? Well, the answer to that is in the contrast between the passages of Scripture to which our author will turn and the speculation that was rampant in the first century. Between the writing of Malachi and around 400 B.C. or before the Common Era, B.C.E., until Matthew, uh, the first of our books, not the first one written, but the first one in our canon, between those two books of the Bible, there's a 400-year period of silence where we don't have revelation from God. And during that period, you wonder, well, what was going on? Well, they were certainly thinking about all that had been written up until that point. They're meditating on Scripture. God's people still exist. They love Him. They are trusting in Him to save them. Some are waiting for the redemption of Israel as we find, and we get to the pages of the New Testament, and we find that Zacharias and Elizabeth are waiting for the consolation of Israel. Simeon, Anna, these saints of old that have been longing for God to fulfill all of His promises. So there was a worshiping community in those 400 years, but there was also a great deal of speculation. There being no prophetic word, People supplemented by coming up with all kinds of traditions. And those traditions were even influenced by the place where Israel, much of Israel, was hanging out in those 400 years. They were hanging out in Babylon still. Yes, there was a 70-year captivity and many of the, well, actually not that many. A relatively small number of Jews returned to the land of Palestine to return to Jerusalem, rebuilt the temple, rebuilt the wall, Ezra and Nehemiah, but it wasn't that huge a group. Many stayed. And they stayed in Babylon. They stayed in Alexandria and Egypt. They stayed. There were Jewish communities all over the Mediterranean world, the ancient world, Mesopotamia, between the rivers, Tigris and Euphrates. They were all over the place. And they began to speculate about their religious understanding in comparison to the religious understanding of the peoples where, uh, that they live next to. And that leads to some problems because all those religions had doctrines of angels but they weren't biblical doctrines of angels. So that speculation made angels a hot topic in the first century. Another piece of, and there was a lot of literature that came out. It wasn't prophetic literature. It wasn't inspired by God, but it was literature that was rabbinic. So that the rabbis are writing this stuff and they're commenting on the Old Testament. They're giving their exposition of Genesis through Deuteronomy or Isaiah or Malachi. They're giving exposition, but they're adding to it their own thoughts and they're becoming quite speculative. So the medieval period, when we talk about how many angels could dance on the head of a pen, you know, what's an angel's relationship to space or whatever, and we think, that's ridiculous. Why are we going to talk about that? Well, that kind of speculation was also going on between Malachi and Matthew, and it was rampant when Jesus came into the world. And so this author, to, we've said, Hebrew audience, 
A Hebrew audience, however, that was part of this dispersion all over the Mediterranean world and spoke Greek rather than Aramaic, and therefore they used the Greek translation of the Old Testament rather than the Hebrew, that they needed some correction with regard to their doctrine of angels. And that's exactly what we get here. We get it because the author wants to make clear, I want you to get your doctrine of angels from Scripture. I don't want you to get your doctrine of angels from the culture around about. Think for just a minute about your own doctrine of angels. What do you know about angels? What do they look like? Well, they look like little chubby cherubs, you know, that are sitting there with their hands like this. It's on every Hallmark card. It's all that. It's Raphael on the um, uh, picture of the Madonna, and there are the little cherubs just sitting under there, all, you know, chubby-cheeked. They look like Cupid, uh, but they're cherubs, so they're angels. They're very benign. They're very pat on the head, very cute. Um, or you can think of angels in the outfield. You know, you all have seen that movie before, here, or the play that preceded it, but here are these angels that rushed to the uh, help of the Los Angeles angels. They needed that when Cleveland beat them by one at the end um, just recently. I guess it wasn't last night, but the night before. But angels in the outfield would be cool. You know, had angelic help, and so you get this idea of this scruffy-looking guy who's actually an angel in a baseball cap, and he's going to help them. And that's where we get our idea of angels. Or maybe it's from It's a Wonderful Life. And you think of Clarence, who's sent down there to help George Bailey not kill himself. And so Clarence comes up with his plan. Clarence is kind of from the 19th century and old and fussy and fumbly and not very competent. And so that's an angel. That's speculation. A lot of tradition with that. But that's not the biblical picture of an angel. In fact, in our Al Mohler book, he has a great point about every time that you see an angel in the pages of Scripture, a human being encounters an angel, they are struck with terror. They want to bow down. Fear not, for there is born to you today in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Why does the angel messenger say that? Because in the previous verse, Luke 2 verse 9, it says that they were terrified. The shepherds that saw these angels were terrified because they were awesome in appearance. So these angels are beings that are a higher order of being than human being, but they're not divine being. But they're very significant, and so the Bible does not deny at all that there are angels and does teach a good deal about angels, but it's not what that speculation is. I make the point simply by way of our beginning as we work our way through. What we get from Scripture is vastly superior to what we learn about God or angels or Jesus from Ask Your Neighbor or from the culture around about us. We go to Scripture and we've got a firm foundation, and that is immensely helpful. So we need to look at these seven verses of Scripture and let them inform our speculation or curb our speculation rather than letting our popular conception of angels inform these seven verses of Scripture. I hope that's clear. you got superiority in verse 4, and you've got the superiority that comes from all of these verses that are going to follow, and that is a great superiority, Scripture is, to the speculation that characterized the first century. That's, I think, why this author brings up angels right at the outset, in order to show that angels, great as they are, are inferior to Jesus. Now, he gets into the bulk of his argument, um, as he comes from these seven Old Testament passages to myriad passages of the intertestamental period. 
And he makes a further argument, beginning with verse 5, where he starts to um, list all of these verses. They're superior to the angels. How do you know that? Well, to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. But of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. We're going to look at four different verses that are quoted from the Old Testament in verses 5 through 7. And we're going to see Jesus is better than angels just as sons are better than servants. Would you rather be the son of the Lord of the manor or the servant of the Lord of the manor? I'd rather be a son. I'm going to inherit the manor. I'm going to live a privileged life. I'm going to live in ease if I'm the Lord of the manor versus being the servant of the Lord of the manor. Now, for those of us that have been saved by grace, we're going to say with David, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. I would rather, I'd be anything in God's household. I'd rather be a fungal toenail in the body of Christ than to be the bicep of the kingdom of Satan. The body of Christ, just as, as long as I'm in it, then that's, that's good news for a sinner saved by grace. But what's better here is to think sons are better than servants. And that's the argument that's used. And he set it up with verse 4. That Jesus has become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And what is that name? That name is, as the next verse makes clear, sons. Which of the angels did did God ever call son? None of them. None of them. But he calls this Jesus his son. You think, when did he call Jesus his son? Well, Psalm 2, verse 7, You are my son, today I have begotten you. But isn't that talking about David or the king? It's a psalm of David talking about David. It's not talking about Jesus Our author is going to make it explicit by the end of our seven verses. No, it's about Jesus, not about David. And we'll see why in just a moment. Or again, second verse, not Psalm 2-7, but now 2 Samuel 7-14. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. All right. We're looking at four verses in in, uh, four Old Testament verses in Hebrews 1, 5-7. Which of those is the most important? Which of those is the most convincing that Jesus is the Son of God and therefore superior to angels. I'm going to make the case that it's Psalm 2-7, but it wouldn't be Psalm 2-7 without 2 Samuel 7-14. 2 Samuel 7 is one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible, particularly in the entire Old Testament. It is of huge importance for our understanding of Scripture. It is why we speak of Jesus as the son of David, why that is the genealogy that he's given in Matthew. That is why he is praised as the son of David by Paul in Romans 1.4. It's why the beggars cried out to him for healing from their blindness. Son of David, have mercy on us. The son of David was this great messianic figure, this anointed one, this one who would be like the King David who would... His reign would never end. It would last forever. And that one was coming. 
And 2 Samuel 7 is where we get the prophecy of that coming descendant of David who will reign forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. So 2 Samuel 7, if you've never paid much attention to it, never read it, never thought that much about it, let me just tell you what you want to read it this week. You want to go back and understand it. And I'm going to read it now for you in the context. Not the whole chapter, but enough to help you see the importance. Uh, Verse 12, we'll start to get the context. The Lord is saying, or Samuel is telling David from the Lord. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, that is die, I will raise up your seed after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son When he commits iniquity, I'll discipline him with the rod of men, but with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. You think, okay, that's that's good. That's a prophecy that David's going to die, but his son, and we all know that Solomon, is going to build the house for the Lord. David doesn't get to because he's a man of bloodshed, but Solomon will, and then Solomon will have a son, and Solomon and then that son, Rehoboam, will have a son, and it'll just keep on going. And so, yeah, that's not that big a deal, is it? All right, a clue that it is that big a deal. Listen to how David responds to that. When Nathan gives him that prophecy, this is what David said. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? But this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You've spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. This is your charter for all of humanity, O Lord God. And what more can I say to you? You know your servant, Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great. He just bows down, prostrates himself before the Lord in unbelievable praise. I can't believe you're going to do this for me. Is David reading into this? Is he going off into making this into something more than it is? David, for whatever reason, understands this to be talking about the Messiah. How would he know about the Messiah? Well, because he had Bible before 2 Samuel. He had the law of Moses. He understood that the promise that all of Israel was looking for came right in the early chapters. In chapter 3 of Genesis, when, human, when Adam and Eve go into sin, on their way uh, into despair, God cancels their despair by giving this incredible promise. The seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. There'll be enmity between the woman and the serpent, and the serpent will bite his heel, will strike his heel, but he will crush the serpent's head. Eve is looking for that in the very first person born in chapter 4. She thinks, hey, this is it. This is the, the one who will deliver us. Well, sadly, that wasn't true. But there would be one who would be the seed of the woman. That word seed or offspring, it's translated more often in the modern versions, but you don't see the connection as well, also shows up when we hear about the seed of Seth, the godly line of Seth who replaces Abel after Cain kills him. 
Then we get the seed of Shem, one of the children of Noah that will be the bearer of this promise. And out of Shem's line, it will fall to Abraham. And out of Abraham, it will pass to Isaac and it will pass to Jacob. And out of Jacob, who had 12 sons, it will pass to Judah, who in chapter 49 of Genesis has said that the scepter will not depart from Judah until the one comes to whom it belongs. So the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the seed of Jacob, the seed of Judah, now out of the tribe of Judah, it's going to come down to one family. David, it's your family. Lord, really? The Messiah is going to come from me? I'll worship him all my life. I will look forward to this one who is going to be born from me, but will save me. And we'll see the importance of that understanding of David in another psalm that comes up soon. Psalm 2, verse 7, is a psalm of David. And it's a psalm of the greatness of the Davidic king. And it's great David looking forward to his even greater son. Well, those are the first two of these verses that make the point Jesus is the son of David. He's the son of God, but he's the son of David also. That's why he can say he became the son. Today I have begotten you. He is begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things are made, the Nicene Creed. There's a distinction between the son who was begotten from eternity past, the eternal logos, and then the son who became incarnate of the Virgin Mary, that son of David who had a beginning and had a time. The son of David did, but the eternal son was forever. He was begotten, not made. All right, we, uh, we push on here. As sons are superior to servants, why do we make the comparison with servants? Because that is exactly what angels are. And that's the point of our third uh, verse in Deuteronomy 32, 43. Let all God's angels worship him. That's taken from the Greek version of the Old Testament from the Septuagint. And it is not in the Masoretic text or the Hebrew text, but it is from the version that was popular at the time. You think, well, that's sketchy. I mean, if you're going to give inspired scripture, you might have, you need to quote the most uh, reliable translations, don't you? Well, I don't know how many of you were paying attention on Sunday if you go to Second Press, but we had a, a, a word on worship at the beginning of our bulletin. And in that word on worship, there was a quotation from scripture, and it was in the NLT, the New Living Translation. And many of us are still of the mind that the living translation, it's not really a translation, it's a paraphrase of the living paraphrase. It's not a sophisticated scholarly Bible. You can't quote from the, the New Living Translation on the front of your bulletin. You've got to go with a solid ESV or the NIV. Or, yeah, you can quote from the NLT because it tells truth and it fits the purposes of our author, our liturgist, trying to help us prepare well for worship. So too... This quotation from the Septuagint, that that was, what, that was the Bible they all read, so that's the one they knew. He can take it right from the Septuagint and make it clear, all God's angels worship him. Who's the him? The son? It makes it sound like it's worshiping the son. And technically, that's not true. The context in Deuteronomy 32 makes it clear that this worship of the sons of God is to Yahweh, the one true and living God, the, the personal name for God that he gives in the Old Testament. In Exodus 3, Exodus 6, by my name Yahweh, I was not known by your fathers, but I will be known that way now. I am who I am. That is this name Yahweh. But the author of Hebrews 
so persuaded that this Jesus is the Son of God and therefore equal to God. He is the creator, and that's they're worshiping Yahweh as the creator in Deuteronomy 32. But the author of Hebrews has already made clear in verse 2 of Hebrews 1, Jesus was God's agent in creation. So that which is ascribed to Yahweh in the Old Testament can now be ascribed to Jesus. Is Jesus superior to the angels? Oh, yeah. He's not only worshipped, he's not only regarded as the son of God, and the sons are superior to servants, he is acknowledged on the same frames as God himself. And he is elevated beyond human being, beyond angelic being, all the way to divine being. Jesus is superior to the angels. And the angels are just servants. And that's the point of the quotation from Psalm 104, uh, verse 4 that follows there. Concerning these, um, these servants. Of the angels, he says, verse 7, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Angels, ministers. Angels, serve. Son, reigns, as we'll see later. He reigns as king. The son will inherit the kingdom. Servants serve around the kingdom. The son sits on the throne, as we'll see in a moment, and the angels are around the throne. The son is superior to the angels just as sons are superior to servants. That's the argument. Okay, we're going to push on here. We need to move on to get to the interesting stuff, although hopefully that's interesting for you right there, those four verses. All right, the son is superior to angels as same is superior to sinusoidal. I have to tell you, I do have to tell you. I always look at these, you know, to see where the blanks fall on the, on the, verses, the version that you get of the outline. I did not leave a blank for sinusoidal. I just thought, they're not going to spell sinusoidal right. I have no clue how to spell sinusoidal. I'm not even sure what sinusoidal means, but we're gonna, I'm going to tell you that in just a minute. But that's what goes in the second blank, and it's S-I-N-U-S, sinusoidal, O-I-D-A-L, sinusoidal. And those of you that are better in math than I am know that sinusoidal means like an oscillating curve that goes like this in math. I went to a nerdy high school. Our football cheer was... Um, Tangent, secant, cosine, sine. Come on, Spartans, we're just fine. Uh, you know, fight, be steadfast, backs in line, 3.14159. You know, let's go, break. Uh, suspect football prowess, but uh, anyway, we understood our, or some, somebody understood something about sines and cosines and tangents, and, but I didn't understand a diddly squat about any of that. Uh, and that's really a bummer, isn't it? When you're not good at math, you don't, you're not a highly intellectual nerd, and you can't play football either. I mean, that's just, that's really rough. But nonetheless, uh, we did have that, that kind of thing. Sinusoidal is changing. It's oscillating. It's up and down, up and down. None of us really wants that kind of emotional life. I mean, yeah, we're all going to have here, but when it goes, whoa, really low and becomes depressed, and then it goes, whoa, really high, and becomes manic. We, we don't like that. That's, that's not healthy. Uh, we, we need a little bit more stability, a little bit more steady. And the author is going to emphasize that word same in these next two Old Testament verses that he gets in order to show the superiority of the son who is steadfast, immovable, immutable, never changes, and the servants, or us, 
creation that it was made, and creation is subject to decay, rot, it can fall apart, and it's better not to lose all of that, not to lose ripeness to rottenness. I wish I could just freeze this moment in time. Have you ever thought that? I wish this is this magic moment. I wish I could just bottle it up, just stop it right here. It's all perfect right now, and we can't. All right, I hope I'll come back to that in just a second. I want to read these verses for you. Verse 8, of the Son, he says, who says? God says, and I need to say that before I go. Every one of these scripture verses is introduced by that formula, God says, God says, and again he says, and again he says, and, and it quotes, this Old Testament is indisputably viewed by the author to the Hebrews as the very word of God. It's not the word of a human being. All of these passages, whether they come from the law, Deuteronomy 32, 43, whether they come from the prophets and in the Hebrew reckoning, 2 Samuel 7, 14 would have been viewed as prophetic, former prophets, or whether it came from the writings, the third branch of scripture, also maybe abbreviated as the Psalms, and all of these Psalms would fit in that classification. Whichever part of the Old Testament you are looking at, it's all the word of God. So be real clear about that. Of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Quoting from Psalm 45, a psalm of a royal wedding, a psalm that because of this passage in Hebrews 1 and also because um, of the analogy that Paul draws in Ephesians 5 between Christ and his church. It's a psalm that speaks of the church in Psalm 45, that we are there as the bride of the Christ, the bride of the Messiah, the bride of great David's greater son. And in that psalm, 45, this messianic psalm, again, your throne is forever. It's forever. And it's also interesting to look at that psalm and recognize your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Your throne, O God, he's addressing the Davidic king and calling him God and making a distinction from real God or the God that they would have understood better when in the very next verse he says, therefore God, your God, has anointed you. God, your God, has anointed you. There is a Trinitarian understanding even flowing through our Old Testament that certainly doesn't make as much sense there as it will when we get to the New Testament. But now being able to understand in the progress of Revelation, there's no contradiction of the New Testament to the Old Testament, but there's a progress there so that now we get it and we go, oh, that's what the seed of David was pushing toward. And we come up to in Abraham's seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Or we're all Abraham's children if we have faith in the Lord Jesus. That makes us children of Abraham even if we're not physically descended from him. So that makes more sense in the New Testament. Oh, I get it. Um, and this idea uh, of the uh, God having a God doesn't make much sense when you're just reading Psalm 45. If you're not reading it as a messianic psalm on the back of 2 Samuel 7, 14, it doesn't make as much sense. This author is saying the Son is God and quoting Psalm 45 to establish that fact. The next passage that he quotes um, is from Psalm 102. And Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, 
but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. Jesus is superior to the angels as same, ageless, immortal, immovable, is superior to flux, to sinusoidal, to up and down, to change, decay, all of this falling around us. This is also, I think, understood by general revelation, not just special revelation. Um, some of you are familiar with um, Keats's poem, Ode on a Grecian Urn, where Keats goes off, this 19th century poet, romantic poet, and he's just waxing eloquent about this. He's meditating on this Grecian urn, this old object of art, and just seeing these figures frozen in time on there. And it's, it's like the perfect moment, and it's captured forever. It's just time stands still. To make it more accessible to many of you, we're going to go from the ode on a Grecian urn to William Faulkner and his short story, The Bear, where in that, these good old Mississippi Hill Country boys are meditating on Keats's ode on a Grecian urn. And the, object, the idea that this tick on the bear's hide as the bear attacks, and you can see all time just sort of stops right there. And it's permanent. And that permanent is better than the flux and the change and all of that, and it's just like freeze this moment permanently. I'm a recovering perfectionist. Some of you are as well. Why is it that we long for perfect? Because we want to get it right and we just want it to stay forever. One day there will be a new heavens and a new earth. One day perfection will come, we know from 1 Corinthians 13. One day the perfect will come, but it's, this is not that day. We live in an imperfect and a fallen world, but we have this yearning for perfect, for eternal, for just get it right and keep it there forever and ever. And because of that, we have a sense of the divine in addition to our sense of human. The creator who does not change, the creation that does up and down and all around. The son, Jesus, is superior to the angels just as same is superior to sinusoidal. That's the argument there. Final argument he gets to uh, with verses 13 and 14. The Son is, again, Jesus, who will be superior to the angels. To which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This is the climax. I think this is the biggie. That Jesus is better than the angels just as sitting is better than standing. And you think, I've heard that before, but it wasn't from the Bible, I don't think. Yeah, I've heard it before too. I heard it from Satchel Page. I've looked on the internet trying to find somebody else said, no, it's really from Winston Churchill. Somebody else, no, it's really. But Satchel Page is one I'm going with. And Satchel Page was this great pitcher first in the Negro Leagues, and then he got his chance. He broke into the Major Leagues, the oldest rookie in the history of Major League Baseball at age 42, and he has a great career. His last professional game, he is throwing. He's not in the Major Leagues at this point, but he's still throwing strikes at the age of 60. And people will go, how do you make it for so long? And Satchel Page, well, here's the secret of my longevity. You know, why run when you can walk? And why walk? when you can stand still? And why stand still when you can sit? And why sit when you can lie flat? <laughs> That's the secret 
of my longevity that I'm going to sit. So the superiority of sitting is maybe understood even generally in the world, but there's more to it than just that. Think about the contrast between a sitting president and a former president. Which one has authority? Well, the sitting president has the authority. The former president doesn't have much. Well, what about the potential president? He has no authority. She has no authority. Why? Because she's not president yet. But the sitting president does. What about gaining a seat in Congress? What does that mean if you're going to gain a seat in Congress? That means you're going to have a seat at the table. You're going to be part of that Congress. You're going to be able to vote. You're going to have authority because you have a seat in that body. When the court is in recess, you don't need to care too much about what the court says because none of it's official. But when the court is in session, and session means seated, then that's when the court has its authority. The elders of the church in Second Presbyterian Church are collectively known as the session because they are seated when they come together to make decisions for the church. And as a session, as those seated, they have authority. The point here in quoting Psalm 110 verse 1 is that Jesus has now taken a seat at the Father's right hand. Sitting is superior to standing. And that's what the angels are doing. They are serving spirits. They are standing there looking for any need that God might have and they'll go to meet it because they are servants and they are standing. But Jesus has finished his service and he was the suffering servant, the servant of all servants, the servant who taught us all that there's value in servanthood and that even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We too should serve and we proclaim ourselves as God's servants for Jesus' sake. But the Son is greater than the servant. The Son has taken a seat because it's finished. He has done his work. He has done his work as a prophet, as a priest, and as a king. What was the position that Jesus took when he wanted to teach the people? Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Jesus went up on a mountain, and after he had sat down, his disciples came to him and he taught them because sitting was the appropriate position for the rabbi who had authority to expound the scriptures, and so he took a seat. The high priest who've offered a sacrifice once and for all acceptable to God and would secure our salvation. After offering purification for sins, I'm taking you back to chapter 1, verse 3, the beginning of our passage. He sat down. It's as though he'd said, it is finished, which he did say on the cross in John 19.30. It's finished, and I'm going to take a seat. It's done. And in his office as king, not just as prophet, not just as priest, but his office as king, he has now sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. God has said, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footstool for your feet. Those of you that are left-handed can take heart. God, too, is left-handed. Jesus sits on his right hand, and so he does everything with his left hand now because of that. That's a joke, by the way. No, that's not. That, that would be major speculation. That would be... That would be the inappropriate addition of a left-handed person here. Okay, so just forget I said that. That's, that's not the point. Um, sitting is superior to standing because it means it's done. I'm not still trying, not still working at it. You know, football is something that we like. I mentioned basketball last time. I'll mention football a little bit. This I don't know if your team won or lost. My team lost in the excruciatingly painful way that only they can. Uh, <laughs> it was really, really painful. 
And you don't get this kind of story too much with college football, which is good, but too often you hear it with professional football, and I just heard it this week, of a professional football player whose team lost in a bad way. A lot of the problem uh, had to do with the offensive line, that they were pretty porous, and one of these hulking offensive linemen was out at a bar kind of drowning his sorrows after the loss, and somebody recognized him. It's not hard to recognize 6'7", 325 pounds, but uh, recognized him. And this wasn't the 6'7", 325 pound guy that was just sort of big old bulging gut and everything, not any in shape. This guy was buff, and he is sitting there having his beer. And this little shrimpy guy comes up to him and says, you know, you guys are pathetic. I could, I could beat you. I could beat you, you know, rushing the pack. You guys did, had no defense whatsoever. I could beat you. And the guy's like, yeah, go away. Hey, buddy, just go away. The little guy goes, no, I could beat you. I really could. I, you're so bad, I could beat you sitting down. Like, buddy, just leave it and go away. The guy's coming up to him. He's in his face. He's over there. I could beat you sitting down. I could beat you sitting down. He's getting to the guy now. He's getting frustrated. He stands up, his full 6'7 frame, his full 325 pounds of muscle. He's standing up. He comes over to the guy who's standing up right next to him. He says, buddy, sit down and shut up. I could beat you sitting down. Another guy in the bar is into this. Now he goes, yeah, he said he could beat you sitting down. We want to see this. I'm betting on him. You know, let's, uh, how many of you want to bet on him? How many want to bet? I'm betting on the little guy. And the other guy's like, no way. He ain't going to, so, you know, people bet on anything. So they begin to bet back and forth. Who's going to win here? Uh, he's going to beat him sitting down. You know, right, sure, let's see him do that. And so uh, they had this big thing going on. All of a sudden the guy yells out, okay, listen, you know, the, this, the big guy says, okay, well, let's just settle it right now. Okay, you say you can beat me sitting down. Let's just settle it right now. He goes, fine, bring it on. It's like he's looking, fine, bring it on. And so the guy out in the audience who's taking all the bets says, all right, on three, one, two, three. The little guy, I beat you. <laughs> you, owe me, you owe me $300, you know. Or you owe, all the guys said, I'm collecting bets here. He beat him. And then uh, the 6'7", 325-pound guy, thankfully, just sort of relaxes, it just sort of laughs. It said, that's pretty good. But you know, I can beat you sitting down. And he, <laughs> that, the point of all that is just to throw football into this somehow. That has no other point. But now, the point of that is to show there are different ways of understanding sitting down. There's no greatness in sitting down. The little shrimpy guy who just sat down for it, hey, I beat you sitting down. We were having a contest to see who could sit down first, and I won. That's not it. Nor is it a play on words to say, yeah, but I can beat you while you're sitting down. I mean, that, no. The point is, it's the sitting down doesn't make Jesus superior. The sitting down illustrates Jesus' superiority. He's sitting down because he's finished, and there's nothing more he can do. What more can he do than for you he has already done? Oh, how he loves you and me. Jesus is better than angels. Just as scripture is superior to speculation, just as sons are superior to servants, just as same is superior to sinusoidal, and just as sitting is superior to standing. 
Jesus is superior to angels in those four ways so that you and I might become superior to the persons that we are now in two ways, in at least two ways. First, let's then respond to our supreme and our seated Savior in these two ways. Number one, rest. Jesus has now rested from all his work. It is done, it's finished. I have paid the price for your sins once and for all sacrifice. And in Hebrews, much is made of that. Uh, that Jesus has now sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having made this sacrifice once for all for sins. And Hebrews' writer is going to pick up on this theme of rest in chapter 4. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the, God, uh, for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. It is finished. To the one who does not work but puts his faith in Jesus as God's son, to that one there is justification for sin, Romans chapter 4. Are you anxious about your salvation? These angels are given as ministers to help those who are to inherit salvation. They have a role to play in salvation, but it's not nearly the role that Jesus plays. Are you nervous about your salvation? Then look at Jesus and how great he is as son, not servant, and take assurance. Rest in his love. Rest in his accomplishment, not your accomplishments. Put your confidence in his grace as prophet, priest, and king and recognize my salvation is secure, not because of me, but because of him. Second application, second way in which this superiority of Jesus ought to impact our lives, and that is worship. Again, Hebrews is going to pick up on that theme of, of worship, and we're going to read these verses when we get toward the end. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It's not sinusoidal. And thus let us offer God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Through Him... Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. 